Welcome back to another episode of MP May's Bug Bites. I'm one of your hosts for the podcast, Mike Bentley. This episode is a special release of the Bug Bites podcast, featuring a one-on-one interview with Dr. Michael Wayman, Deputy Director for Clemson's Regulatory Service. Michael introduced me to a crazy world of illegal activity that until this interview I didn't even know existed. The business of counterfeit pest control products. Believe it or not, there are folks out there who are in the business of manufacturing and selling knockoff counterfeit pest control products, much in the same way that there are people out there that make fake sport jerseys or knockoff designer sunglasses. In this episode, I sat down with Michael to find out more about this crazy and dangerous business and what's being done to stop it. I don't want to rush the conversation, but I cannot tell you how incredibly interested and excited and curious I am about this because this is something I knew nothing about. So Jim sits down with me the other day and he says, man, I just saw the craziest presentation on something that I didn't even know existed. (laughs) Counterfeit products. I'm like, what do you mean? Like knock off Nikes? What what are we talking about here? And he goes, no, no, no. Counterfeit pest control products, like a fake ant bait that looks like it's packaged in the real thing. So, and this kind of sent us off into the spiral of 20 or 30 minutes of me asking him a million questions. And that's after that, I said, you know, I've I've got to reach out to to Mike and talk to him and, and, and get some information from him. And it's it's such an important thing that I think everybody needs to know about this. So we should put this into a podcast episode so everybody can get to it. So let's start with the first and most basic thing that I thought of whenever he asked me this. So, so what exactly is whenever we talk about a counterfeit product, what are we talking about? Well, when we talk about counterfeit products, we're talking about, and, and you're absolutely right. You, you made an analogy to Nike's. Um, it is a huge problem, and there's multiple centers put up to to handle counterfeit. And usually, you're right. You're talking about athletic shoes. You're talking about uh, women's makeup. Um, here, obviously, we're talking about pesticides. And, and simply stated, um, like this is nothing short of organized crime. Um, because if you take a look at, and I can certainly forward you some pictures if Jim hasn't already. These are, these people are, I mean, you have your, your bottom of the line people, but we're talking, this is a multi-billion dollar a year industry. And simply stated, it is individuals that are selling products, um, that are brand names that are knockoffs. They are, and this is not somebody cooking this stuff up in their basement. This is a, full-blown manufacturing. Mostly we see it coming in from China um, and India and some from the UK, but these are production-based businesses that do an incredible job at mimicking what the real products look for to the point where you have to be an expert um, to, to be able to discern the difference between some of these products. I mean, even the registrants, um, and it's a game of catch up, you know, they'll, they'll come up with something where they'll do something unique with a label, like put a hologram in it. And the next thing you know, there's someone out there selling this thing that looks exactly alike. And to anyone, including a pest management professional, you couldn't tell the difference by looking at it. Um, so it's simply that it, it's just something mimicking a brand name and being sold as such. But it's not. It's something completely different. It's something manufactured outside the registrants, 
manufacturing facility, um, but it's made to look precisely what the original brand name product that the registrant puts out in the channels of trade looks like. So it's undiscernible to anyone, including, like I said, a PMP, let alone a homeowner, that they'd be able to look at this and tell the difference. The, the difficulty becomes in what we find a lot of the times is that not only do they look exactly alike, sometimes they will have the same active ingredient. Sometimes they don't. And that's really where we concern ourselves with um, in the, on the regulatory side of things is that we have unfortunately found some products that have entered the channels of trade, meaning come in from overseas, got through customs, and then are being sold on the Internet. Um, of course, both abroad, but also within the United States um, that are that have one thing on the label as their active ingredient. And then when we find these things and we analyze them, we find out that, in fact, no, it's not the actual uh, active ingredient that is on the label, nor is meant to be in the product. So it becomes a use issue where we do have some products um, that we can get into in a little bit that um, we're looking at. Uh, violations because the product, the active ingredients are not allowed. Um, they don't have a use pattern sometimes, for example, to be used indoors or in a food handling establishment. Um, so that's a long answer to a short question, but that's basically, that's just it. I, it's nothing. It's just exactly like a knockoff Rolex or a, a fake pair of Oakley's. It's something that the general public, and in this case, in some of the bigger operations, even the professionals can look at and not tell the difference between um, the true brand product and this counterfeit knockoff. That's insane. So, okay, so you're saying that the the packaging may look exactly the same, but the contents inside of it can be drastically different. So it's not even like you're buying a cheaper knockoff that still consists of the same active ingredients. You're saying that it may just have like a grab bag of mixed ingredients? Yeah, unfortunately, that is that is true. We found that to be the case in a numerous in, in numerous investigations. Now there are some that will use the same active ingredient, and they will just sell it cheaper, mimicking the brand name. Um, so these are and and just to be clear, these are not generic. These are these are products that maybe do have generics or maybe perhaps are still under patent, but they are so, they look so much alike that it's just impossible to tell the difference. But yes, unfortunately we've found on more than, well, numerous occasions that uh, when we analyze the product, it turns out to be something other than the AI that's supposed to be in the product as well as what the, the label says. Yeah. And, and just to kind of clarify from my own point here, it's, just because it has the same active ingredient doesn't necessarily put it in the realm of safe, right? Because, I mean, if so, let's you know, let's say the active ingredient A is found in the knockoff, just like it is in the original product. Is it still the exact same concentration of the active ingredients, or are we are we dealing with an identical product all the way down to the percentage of active ingredient, or can that even be different? That's a great question, and I think my answer to that would be. Um, there's a vast difference because quite frankly, these people are extremely good at counterfeiting. However, it's been my experience that these guys aren't chemists. So yes, um, we, even when we get the products that do have the actual active ingredient, 
generally speaking, the percentage is off. Um, a lot of the times it's much lower than the label indicates. Unfortunately, sometimes it's much higher than the label indicates. Um, but the example I was going to use is a case that we worked um, with South Carolina um, where this woman was sold a known flea and tick product for dogs. Um, so it did not come with a label, uh, not a complete label anyway, but the active ingredient was imidacloprid. Imidacloprid is, at, for sure, labeled um, for application to both cats and dogs for flea and tick prevention. Um, but as a result of it not being a clear label, she consulted the store uh, employee, and the employee said that it is she used to apply one cc every month and that was it that was all she was told she took this product home like i said it was an incomplete label there were no directions for use but it looked legit um so she did that however she applied one cc with that syringe orally and it killed her dog so like i said before imidacloprid fipronil a lot of products out there utilized for this but if the application is to be made on the nape of the neck. So the dog can't, um, in all probability, ingest the product. It's slowly uh, absorbed transdermally and works uh, that way. So when we investigated this case, not only did we have a problem with the label, but um, when we look at these things, you usually see probably between six and 8% of imidacloprid when we're looking at the true non-knockoff things. This was tested out at 48%. Um, oh, my so, gosh. Exactly. So um, that's just an example, just one of many, where, you know, this product was put together using raw ingredient, and instead of, they, they took, literally took imidacloprid, um, obviously out of a, a pest-controlled bottle, and we're dosing this stuff themselves. Um, so instead of diluting it to what the percentage rate would be to be safe to apply um, to an animal, um, they use raw product. Um, and as a result of that fact, and the fact that this woman, by no fault of her own, um, you know, you get a syringe, um, you know, we, I can't fault her for applying it the way that she did, given the fact that she was given oral directions, not telling her to apply one cc to the back of the neck, but just apply one cc per month. And she just assumed, seeing the syringe, that it was to be administered orally. And of course, it, it wasn't with tragic results. So that's just one example of many of how, even when you get a product, it, it, as you said, the segue for this was that it can be the same active ingredient, however, you, you have no idea whether or not it's going to be at the percentage that the manufacturer as well as EPA has approved that product to go out. And here's an example where it was way over the top. It went from, like I said, like between 6 and 8% to 42%. It was 42.8% imidacloprid um, that she administered 1cc orally to the dog. And like I said, it killed the dog immediately. Man, that's, that's heartbreaking and frightening all at the same time. So... So it sounds like this is not something that's only affecting – so uh, the, the counterfeit products aren't only something that um, you would buy for structural pest control. It sounds like 
manufacturers are being impacted by this in every single product that they sell, all the way from veterinary medicine through structural pest control through maybe even the agricultural side. Absolutely. That's a true statement. Yeah, we see a lot of knockoffs in ag as well. Um, but primarily since this task force is through ASCRO, um, we're focusing on uh, the structural side. Um, however, we're not just turning a blind eye to all of the products and the problems that we have with it. And that's the nice thing about the task force is that we can communicate um, with states and it doesn't, it's not necessarily confined to the structural pest control. It's just, that's when it, when we look at money, that's where the money is in the pest control products. Um, generally speaking, you know, as I'm preaching to the choir, a lot of the same active ingredients that we use in the pest control industry are used in agriculture. But for whatever reason, the products in agriculture are generally cheaper. Um, so it's everything involved. It's, uh, it just happens to be more prevalent within the structural pest control arena. But I really think, um, in theory anyway, it's just because that people can get more money for those types of professional products than they can on ag side. So you, you kind of mentioned this already, but so where, I mean, is there one specific place that you find that these products are being illegally manufactured and distributed, or is it just pretty equally across the board? It's just pretty, you know, any country can develop this stuff. You know what, we've, we've seen all kinds, we've seen Thailand, we've seen Philippines, um, so, yes, it's all over. And it's also endemic. We have people in the United States that are doing it right here as well. Um, we have plenty of cases where we found that to be the case. Um, but like I said before, if I really had to say, I, I think, um, and in looking at the data, which is a little bit dated, but I think it's still fair to say that the majority of the products are coming in from China. Um, so, yeah, I would say... Um, and I'm not quite sure why that is. It's just over the years has seemed to, to uh, they, they are, when you look at percentages of products that are found and compare them to all of the nations that have, we've found these things throughout the United States and its territories, um, China just sets itself apart uh, with just having a larger percentage of products coming out of China. Just wrapping my head around all this. This is this is nuts. So a two-part question here. First part of this is how long has this been going on? And the second part is how did you guys first discover this? So I can tell you this is a, this has been going on for decades. Um, now, there have been some um, high-profile cases. The Amazon case is one that is a huge case, um, but they're still few and far between. So... We kind of find out about it, um, you know, by really good old-fashioned inspection and investigation work. Um, techni- our, our investigators, and when I say our, I mean our nation's investigators, are out there looking at things, um, and and they've received training over the years. We, as this problem has grown, we are much more versed at to what to look for. Um, that kind of raises red flags. One of the biggest ones is if the pesticide um, label has sections that are not in English, um, that, that's a, big, a, a dead giveaway. We also, as you're aware, one of the few companies that never really caught on to the metrics. So if we're not looking at things that are in ounces 
um, and they're and they're measured by weight in the, using metric. Um, then that's that's going to be a dead giveaway. But we don't use that. There's no labeling in this case to print it out, telling you how to administer this using the metric system. It's all going to be ounces or it's going to be gallons, depending upon what we're mixing and what kind of load it is. Um, so it's just stuff like that. It's good investigative work. That plus there are um, the main, the restaurants do a really as good as they can a really thorough job, and because it's it's behooves them obviously they're protecting a band uh, or excuse me a brand. So and they shouldn't be ashamed of that. the The bottom line is that this hurts sales. Um, when people find a product um, and they find out that it's something that it is a knockoff. And worse yet, it's caused an environmental impact or it's made someone sick or it's killed someone's pet, then it's going to leave a mark on that, the, the registrant, whether it should be or not. Um, so they, uh, they help us a lot in, in letting us know that, you know what, we're looking at this product that we bought off the shelf and we brought it back and it, it does not look like ours. Um, can you take a look at it? So, Really, it's just like to answer your question, it's good investigative work, knowing what to look for, and then having the manufacturers uh, putting a dog in this fight um, to help us as regulators find these products and then go after who's made. So you mentioned a couple of these things. Yeah, you know, it, the, the product may not look right. Uh, there may be differences in how quantities of the product are advertised on the label or the label may have you know parts of it sections of it that are in different languages um are there any other signs that somebody can rely on to look for uh to, to help them identify if they potentially suspect that they may have a uh, a counterfeit product yeah we usually tell people um that really what they want to look for is an intact label. And and most PMPs know what that means. I mean, you're going to have different sections of the label that are always going to be on every US EPA approved Section 3 granted registration. So there's going to be things like personal protection equipment, um, directions for use, the environmental uh, section. So if you're looking at a label that is incomplete, um, then that's that's a sign of a, for an alarm um, that it possibly may not be right. As he said, and you restated, um, we print our pesticide labels in the United States right now and always have. Um, who knows? Perhaps that may change. But right now, it's still true. All of them are in English. So if you have a pesticide product that you have a label that is not in English or even portions of the label that are not in English, um, with the exception of some agricultural products, we do have some Spanish translations in there, and that's to protect migrant workers on the farm. Um, but if you see large portions of the label, especially a structural pest control uh, product that is not in English, that's another red flag that you need to really look into to make sure. Um, if the Internet, it's one of those old adages, if it seems too good to be true, it is. These products, when we look at the professional-grade products, are very expensive. If you find sales on the internet of a product that is much cheaper than it should be, then something's going to be wrong. Um, we've had plenty of cases where we've had product that was sold um, as an active ingredient, for example, using Fipronil, where we find out that when we get it and we test it, it's not Fipronil. It's something completely different, permethrin, cybermethrin. 
Um, so when you see something, especially on the internet, where the sales are too good to be true, generally they are. Something's going to be wrong with that product. Um, another big one, um, make certain that it clearly states the active ingredient or ingredients that are to be in the product. Um, and also really, the, believe it or not, as good as these people are, a lot of the times they'll make the, the one mistake of omitting an EPA reg number. So if you ever see a product out there, um, whether you're a homeowner, whether you're a pest control operator um, that doesn't have an EPA reg number, um, then that's also cause for alarm. Man, if, if there was ever a, a reason to hype up the need for label training, because everyone, it's, it, I, I feel like every time I try, you know, I talk to people, hey, we're going to go over the label really quick. Oh, why do we have to do that? I know how to read the label. I read it all the time. <laughs> now you have the yeah. perfect justification. You better know, not only do you need to know the label, you need to know you need to know the label well enough to recognize if something is missing from the label. That's the take home message, really. It is. And you're right. That you do the and because it through no fault of their own, they may be thinking that they purchased something completely legal. There's no way for them to know that it's not. But as you and I both know God forbid if something were to happen where someone were to get sick and we and it were found out that this product was purchased online and it turned out to be a counterfeit product and the active ingredient was way too high or the active ingredient was different than what was posted on the label that resulted in someone getting sick, then the pest control professional is going to get sucked into that lawsuit. Um, it's just the way our litigious society works these days. Um, so they they really do have a responsibility um, to make certain that they, as she said, are aware not only of the label being present, but what, what parts on the label that EPA requires be there. So if they do get to a product and they don't have directions for use, okay, something's wrong here because every single product in the United States that's registered as a pesticide must have directions for use. So that's it's one of those that in and of itself, um, if you see that, that's a problem. Um, so, yeah, you're right. It does. It, it And unfortunately, it does. And another thing is, you know, when you take over these accounts, you need to really do your due diligence. Um, we see a lot of this um, in the restaurant and food service industry, um, which is kind of scary. Um, and by a lot of this, I mean counterfeit um, and both. Uh, counterfeit and illegal or adulterated products that are coming in um, from overseas. And so although this conversation is focusing on counterfeit products, because that's probably the most difficult portion of, of looking at these internet, the illicit and illegal internet sales, because these counterfeiters are just so good and they get better at what they do every day. Um, but we also really also concentrate on illicit, illegal, and adulterated products that are coming in. So these things sometimes aren't in, you know, a pretty little package or a beautiful joke with a great looking label on it. Sometimes they can be in anything from, you know, a, a plastic pill bottle to, um, you know, we had a large scale um, investigation that was going between Indiana, South Carolina, and Georgia, and the product was being sent in overseas from China. And what was literally, as you'll recall, as a child, those 
dark uh, cough medicine syrup bottles with the white lids that you get from the pharmacy. Um, that's what that's exactly what they were. And there was no label language at all. There was just a little squiggly on it in Chinese. Um, but we found that this was being used Indiana, South Carolina, North Carolina, Tennessee, and Georgia in restaurants. And it was basically Chinese restaurants. And, it, it, you know, they had no de- directions for use. As a matter of fact, the, the people actually in this investigation, um, and I don't want to get off topic, but it just so happens that in the office of the Indiana State chemist, one of their chemists um, is Chinese. So she was able to decipher the label from us or the, the directions. And it said, you know, dilute six ounces in a gallon of water, blah, but the, the striking part about it was that the actual directions um, at the bottom of the directions for use it said, trans, this is being translated, of course, because it was in Chinese, but it said, very important, and I'm quoting now, do this for the brain, do not get caught by Department of Public Health. So these people know what they're doing, right? They know that this is illegal. Um, and they're even telling the clients, you know, this is something that you must do clandestine. This isn't something that you want a health inspector coming through and finding in a closet. So what, what was in the bottles? Well, it was what was in the bottle was actually technical grade fipronil, and they were using it all over. I mean, they're painting these kitchens with it. Um, so, and that's just one example of of things where you know it's just it's such a it is such a large problem to get your hands around, and that's why I think um, when we first started talking about this task force, it was out of frustration because you know. It's one thing in South Carolina, if I can find someone inside the state of South Carolina that is selling a counterfeit, adulterated, or illegal product over the Internet, if I can go after them. What I can't do is I can't find a product and trace it back to the state of Indiana because, there's, you know, we cross state lines. So, and that was, and I don't fault EPA, I really, what who really, if I'm being honest, is... The U.S. Attorney's Office, unfortunately, FIFRA um, is, they're nothing but misdemeanor crimes. So you have an assistant U.S. attorney that's got a backlog of cases on his or her desk. You can't fault them for not wanting to go after a misdemeanor case when they have such high profile cases on their desk. And that was really where the buy-in was lost. It wasn't that EPA didn't try to put a dog in the fight. Their CID did, and we've had many cases where we worked, and, and we have a really good relationship with EPA CID, which is our criminal investigative division outside of their fifth unit. And uh, but they take these cases to the AUSA, and they they wouldn't put a dog in the fight because it was just a misdemeanor. Um, but I was asked at this meeting that Jim was talking about. You know, we have these entities that are now being concerned, gaining concern. And it's funny that this kind of came to fruition where this topic has been being batted around um, by not just ASCO and the regulators, but it's it's been an action item for RISE. It's been an action item for NASDA. So it really just all came together at the right time. Um, and when I was asked to, to lead the task force, I I just I jumped at the occasion. I, it's something that's been a passion of mine and you know, for 20 years. 
Um, so I, I jumped at it and they kind of gave me carte blanche to put my team together. And we really have a blue ribbon panel of individuals, um, especially Jim Frederick and Stephanie Bins from Rise and then Elena DeLucia from uh, NASDA, who was their executive director for policy. Um, and then we have the two two gumshoes, the regulators, me and George Saxton out of the Indiana, Office of Indiana State Chemist. So um, t- together, I think, I feel like we are really going to make a difference in this. Um, and it's one of those deals where, like I said before, we're, before we were kind of hamstrung in the fact that we, our authority doesn't generally allow us to go outside of our own states. Now with this task force, and receiving the buy-in that we are from other stately agencies. Um, the theory is that Kentucky is going to find a product that's adulterated or illegal or counterfeit. But, and they're going to find shipping invoices or bills of laden where this product was sold from North Dakota. Well, now, instead of trying to urge EPA to do it, we work through this task force and we have a single point of contact in each state or then Kentucky picks up the phone and calls North Dakota and says, okay, this product is coming out of your state. Here's the bill of sale. Here's the shipping address. And then South Dakota picks up the ball with their regulatory team and they go in after these guys and they do buy bus. Um, and they do uh, just raids on these for lack of a better word, on these facilities, if they do have a brick and mortar. Um, some of the illegal stuff and the adulterated stuff is actually being made, for lack of a better term, in the in the basement or in the garage. Um, it's not near as sophisticated as these counterfeit products are. Um, so a lot of the times on those investigations, when we do get to a point where we're ready to take an enforcement action, um, it's a private residence. So you're saying that it, this isn't, simply a case to where everything's being manufactured overseas and then distributed over here, you're finding situations in which the product is being illegally manufactured, the, the counterfeit products is being illegally manufactured here in the U.S., in, in some cases. In some cases, absolutely. And, and more than a few cases, yeah, for sure. So it's, now, we I won't say we worry more. We worry about all of it, but... The fact of the matter is that a lot of these countries that are importing things still use products that EPA and the United States has banned decades ago. You know, there are a lot of countries out there that still use DDT, a lot of countries out there that still use your old style um, organo, organochlorines, um, heptachlor, those type of products that are readily available. Um, so that's why we worry, because you just don't know what the active, what's in some of these products. And I think the fact of the matter is that we do have a high profile, especially including at the federal level between Homeland Security and ICE and, deal, and Customs and Border Patrol dealing with these knockoffs when it comes to sports jerseys and night shoes and fancy watches. And as I said before, like Oakley's and, and Ray-Bans that are knockoffs, um, pesticides has really been kind of just really not ignored. They just didn't know about it. So that's why I, I love the opportunity um, to talk to th- these federal guys about this, the postal inspectors, these guys, because they had no idea what kind of a huge problem this is. 
and not the least of which a problem is, so you get a counterfeit pair of Nikes. Yes, it's hurting the brand, and people are getting ripped off because they're not getting what they're paying for. You take a counterfeit or a adulterated pesticide, that, that's a game changer because now we have, the, we have real clear and present danger of not only environmental impact, but somebody getting killed because they're utilizing a product in a manner inconsistent with the label and what's listed on the label as the active ingredient is not the active ingredient or it's 10x what the percentage of the active ingredient should be. You know, on, on that same note, and you mentioned this a little bit earlier, you touched on this a little bit, but I want to kind of be more specific with it. So in most cases, I would assume that somebody encounters and purchases a counterfeit product unintentionally. So absolutely under that assumption, what, what sort of liabilities do they have here? What, what is on the line for a PMP that, you know, ends up with a product that has a grab bag of potentially, you know, dangerous levels of an active ingredient that's in there? Um, or just active ingredients that have no, are no longer even legally allowed to be utilized in the United States? What, what kind of liability are they looking at? That's an excellent question, and I'll preface it by saying, of course, that I am not an attorney, but I feel like I can weigh in on this issue after the 23 years of experience. I think it's going, you're going to hate this answer, but I think it's going to depend. It depend and what that, why I say that is what we've seen is no professional pest management um, operator I would hope, would knowingly purchase a counterfeit product. Um, so where the culpability or better stated liability will come in is if they do happen to get their hands on a counterfeit product, and it's obviously a counterfeit product where you have someone that's been in the pest control industry for a decade or more, and you can clearly look at this product and realize that this the label's not legit, there's no EPA reg number, there's no directions for use, so as you get farther away from the real deal, then your your liability is going to substantially increase because what you've not done is your due diligence or you you haven't utilized that that skill set, that knowledge that you've picked up to know, okay, I know what a pesticide product label looks like and this isn't it. But I used it anyway. Now you're gonna now you're you're in. I mean you're gonna get it's just like anything else. Um it's like, you know, a termite infestation. Their liability and the scope of that is going to be dependent in large part as to whether or not there's a negligence portion um, on an accusation where someone, an attorney can sit there in front of a judge and a jury and say, okay, after this long in the industry, you know what a pesticide product should look like. Clearly, this is missing some of those components that you know are required in the United States to be there, but yet you utilized it anyway. And it resulted in, you know, someone getting sick of God forbid, somebody died. Um, so that's a long answer to a very involved question that really would be better suited, uh, a better answer of an attorney. But like I said, I can tell you that there's, there's definitely liability there, and the liability is going to substantially increase um, as those key things that we look for in a pesticide product label are absent from the product that we're talking about. So as, as you said before, it, it's paramount that our folks know um, not just what a product should look like, but the different parts that are required to be on a product label. And also 
the fact that these manufacturers tweak the label language on these products all the time. So the fact that you've been using the same product for five years does not mean that that product you started five years ago is even close to what the label resembled today. So it's bad enough when the product is legit and you don't keep up with the label. Um, it's, you know, much, much worse when the product isn't legit and you fail to review the label to make certain that the components that jump out at you that you know have to be there are missing. And it sounds like you guys, you know, from the regulatory side especially, there are some things being done to try to stop this. I mean, it sounds like it's this juggernaut that is kind of, you know, an immovable object maybe. It's got a lot of momentum. But, I mean, you've got the Blue Ribbon Task Force. What other efforts are being put in place right now from the regulatory side? And and if you can speak to the manufacturer side as well, um, just from your experience, what you've seen done, uh, what's currently being put in place to try to counteract this? So we are – we have the task force. It it is – we're in the process of now recruiting um, those single point of contacts from each of the various states. Um, to help streamline the process so we're not going in and we're not dealing with, you know, three different people from the same agency. Um, another thing that I'm very happy to admit, at our last annual meeting, ASCRO, I actually sat down with members of EPA, and EPA has actually, um, as far as I know, for the first time, has put together a unit, um, small but yet it's a great step in our direction, a unit that is looking at this as, as a big ticket item. Um, so I think that that's only going to help. And I'll say this, I, it, we need EPA just like EPA needs us. And it, it, it will only work if we, if we get the buy-in from the state SLAs as well as EPA. Um, the registrars um, are really, and you know, as I said before, quite frankly, it it affects their bottom line. So it's in their best interest, although very expensive, but a, ne- a necessary evil to have people working on these things. They're doing, um, they're going out in the channel of the trade, and they're they have people looking at these products. They're purchasing these things, bringing them back to their laboratories, and then comparing them. Some of the registrants are now considering or have already added a marker. Um, some means that you can analyze the product, even if it's the same active ingredient, and realize that if this says this was Dallas product <clears throat> and we purchased it off the shelf and then we bring it back and we analyze it, and it, yes, it is an active ingredient, but that specific marker that only Dow has isn't in that product, now we know for certain, um, even if it's a great, great counterfeit, right down to the I's are dot and the T's are crossed, um, those are things that are extremely important and make a huge difference. Um, making labels just like U.S. currency much more difficult to counterfeit. Putting things in there that the registrants and the manufacturers only know. Um, holograms, um, things like that. So it's, it's causing everyone to think outside the traditional box, but they're coming up with some really good um, ways to help deter this problem. Yeah, well, it it definitely sounds like you're you've got a lot of the the right pieces in place, and you know from a P, from a PMP's perspective, um, I understand that 
some of this comes from a homeowner deciding they're going to go and just buy a product blindly off the internet and they're going to probably sort by lowest price and then pick that product. And it sounds like, like you said, too good to be true. That lowest price product is most likely not going to be a legit product. From a PMP's perspective, though, um, I, I, I doubt that in many cases that's where they're turning to to get these products, though it's certainly likely that that could be the case. What should PMPs be doing? Um, where should they be going to get their products uh, to, to make sure that they, they have a reliable source? Another great question, and you're absolutely right. Um, the, the medium, mid to large companies are more than likely going to have a very well-established relationship with the dealer that they're getting their pesticides from. So we really, that, that, that concern isn't there when that's who we're dealing with. It's the mom and pops and the startups that maybe don't have that relationship, nor do they have the money to purchase the products that they need to really get the business rolling. We worry about those guys being taken advantage of and looking for that, that low ball deal on a product that looks like it's the same thing that Terminex is using, so I must be good and I'll, I'll start that and this is a great price. Um, <clears throat> so what they need to look for is to make sure that you're established with a, a known and respected dealer um, that has, you know, that has been in business for, I won't say in business for a number of years because you can have just as reputable company as a startup, but do your due diligence. Um, you know, talk to the people, talk to some of the customers, um, talk to some other uh, people in your field that may be utilizing the same dealer, um, you know, if you're just starting out and looking for one, but they need, buy it, be, have it be a reputable dealer. And the last thing the dealer is going to get, and the dealers are another help with this. They'll, if they, they may get a product um, that somebody just walks in off the street and asks if they can, you know, get some shelf space. Um, if they have questions, um, it's not unlikely at all for them to pick up the phone and give us a call and say, hey, you know, the next time you have one of your inspectors in the area, can you have stop by? I don't want to take a look at this product before I, before I put it out on the shelf. Just make sure everything's legit with it. So I, one of my last questions that I have here is something that um, to me was the first question that popped into my head as soon as Jim started telling me all this stuff was, all right, sounds bad. There's liability that is carried with having one of these products. And certainly I don't think that there would be anybody out there that would want to house or use a product that they found to be a, a legally manufactured product, counterfeit product. What should a PMP do if they happen to look at a product they order online and say, oh, man, this is – half of this label is in a different language and it's missing, you know, the the, the, the warning information. There's no, uh, you know, uh, PPE information on here. So this is – this legitimately looks counterfeit. What What are they supposed to do in that situation? I would implore them to pick up the phone and call their state regulatory agency. Now, they can also call EPA, but all EPA is going to do is put that referral back to the state lead agency. So they'd be cutting out the middleman by just contacting their state's pesticide regulatory agency. Man. So there, there, there's so many checks and balances in place. It certainly sounds like from a manufacturer's perspective, they are you know really leading this cutting edge approach to trying to rein this problem in. Uh, from a regulator perspective, it sounds like you guys are, are certainly, you know, through your help, most certainly, you've got a, a huge push from EPA, 
from every single regulatory perspective. So it sounds like everything's moving in the right direction. Is there hope that this is going to ultimately get bottled up and and completely stifled? I mean, what's your what's your outlook on this problem? So I get asked that all the time. Realistically, I don't look for it to go away. My hope is to put a significant enough dent into it and be able to get some real high-profile enforcement actions and maybe even some jail time that will make this something that people would definitely give second and third thoughts to, do I really want to get into this because there's a risk that I could go to jail. Um, So, you know, we're not, you know, the Amazon thing was a huge, huge deal, but it's a drop in the bucket um, to what's going on out there as far as um, this problem. So I would say, yeah, I would hope to be able to make a, a noticeable and substantial reduction in this process happening. Um, I'm realistic, like I said. I'm not, you know, I don't, I don't think we're going to ever get it, make it go away, um, just because it's lucrative. Um, but we can certainly do our best to inform people that if they do do this, um, then they do it at a price. And if they get caught, they're going to be prosecuted to the full extent of the law. You know, the biggest, one of the biggest boundaries we've seen in this is, is getting the word out. And, uh, you know, that's the, that's the key here is going to be getting the information disseminated to the people that are really the boots on the ground. And that's our PMPs, our homeowners, as well as, you know, our, our business owners. So um, I'm very, very pleased with the direction that this is going. As I said before, I'm honored to be a part of it. And uh, like I said, we're, we're going to work hard. Um, but I'm confident that we're going to be able to put a dent in this and at least, like I said before, make people pause and reflect before they decide they're going to get into something like this, realizing that it does come with a risk. I hope you enjoyed this special episode of MPMA's Bug Bites and that you found this topic as interesting as I did. Educating our industry on this problem is an important step to fighting this issue Because simply being made aware that fake products like this exist can help to avoid the unintentional purchase of an illegally manufactured pesticide, because the buyer will be more likely to assess where and how they are buying something. And you're now armed with the knowledge and the information of what to look for on the packaging and most importantly, the label that can be clear giveaways that a product may not be legit. It's great to hear that the manufacturing of counterfeit pest control products is something that's being addressed at every level, and that there are individuals out there like Michael in place to combat this problem. Thanks again for listening, and be sure to subscribe to the channel if you haven't already so you don't miss the release of another episode.